Perinatal Stories Australia. Welcome to Perinatal Stories Australia. My name is Rebecca, and every episode we provide a listening ear to the lived experiences of mental illness during pregnancy and postpartum. I hope this podcast reduces stigma, informs listeners about support services available, and inspires those on their own healing journey. More importantly, I hope you can hear these stories and know you're not alone. Thank you for being here to hold space for the stories we often keep to ourselves. Welcome back, everyone. I'm joined today by the beautiful Tegan, um, who is here to share her incredible story. I will let you introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your family. Beautiful. So my name's Tegan. Oh, Um, Tegan, I'm so sorry. (laughs) I haven't corrected you, so it's on me as well. Um, (laughs) I am a mother of two little girls who are almost four and two. Wow. Um originally when I had my babes I lived in Adelaide but 12 months ago I moved back to sort of the country area I was originally from and there's a whole story behind that that I'm sure we'll get into. Sure. Um, I was a physiotherapist I just before I had my babes went into mental health as a peer worker so worked at an acute mental health hospital in a peer role so using my own lived experience to walk alongside people on their own journey so that was my latest sort of working role and yeah I navigate my mental health I've got an ongoing mental illness bipolar disorder which I was diagnosed with when I was 21 um, I'm a bit later to have kids, so I was 35-ish when I had my first little bub and then 37, turning 38 with my second. So, yeah, I had this big history of navigating mental illness pre-babies mm. and it was 100% thrown on its head when I had babies. <laughs> of course. And yeah. maybe this is a controversial question, But did having that diagnosis impact whether you wanted to have children or the timing of when you wanted to have children? Yeah, hugely. Early, early in my diagnosis, I was resistant to medication in general, Mm. Um, but hugely resistant because the medication that was gold standard for my illness at the time, I couldn't be pregnant on. Yeah, which can I just confirm, is that lithium? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So at the time, the thoughts were you definitely would have to come off medication to even attempt to be pregnant. Mm. Um, It wasn't correct in my thinking, but it equated in my head that I probably shouldn't have children if I had to be on this medication that didn't allow me to be pregnant whilst taking it. And there was a lot more behind that. And I think as I was sort of investigating what it might mean in the future for me, And it took years to investigate. (laughs) I had one psychiatrist tell me, again, this was years ago, um, but her advice was, well, we just come off the medication and we fly by the seat of our pants for your pregnancy till the moment you can go back on it. Yeah. And that was terrifying from a professional. So, yeah, it was was hard from the get-go. Yeah, um, and... You, you mentioned you were diagnosed at 21. Did that take a long time to get that diagnosis? I was actually relatively lucky with my journey. It can take years for people to get a bipolar diagnosis. I, in year 12, definitely struggled with perfectionism and some depressive-like symptoms coming into play. By the time I moved away the following year for uni, I crumbled and was diagnosed with depression and put on medication and told, this will fix it, it'll be fine. And I spent the next three years being fine every time my medication was upped. Mm. So slowly but steadily my medication level was going up, an antidepressant, SSRI, Um, but I'd bottom out, whether that was a month down the track, six weeks down the track, a few months down the track, I would bottom out again and have Mm. to bump up the level. It got to a level where... I had an induced manic episode because of the medication I was on, which sounds horrible, but it was a blessing in disguise because it actually showed what was happening underneath and got me 
the start of the help that I needed and the diagnosis that I needed. And you mentioned resistant to the bipolar medication. In terms of the help you did receive, are we talking psychology, psychiatry? Yeah, all of the above. I was in the public system. I had a psychiatrist. I, I'm going to say dabbled in psychology. I do sort of increments until I no longer could implement what was being said it wasn't that I disagreed necessarily it just that it wasn't working specifically for me but yeah all of the above so medication site work I think the hardest things in those few early years is I was a high achiever Mm. I'd bounce back and think I didn't need to do any more work because I'd bounce back so when it all came to a head again whenever that happened to be whilst I had develop some skills around it I hadn't done enough work to negate or navigate what I was what was the front of me and we spoke about this a little bit when you put up this incredible post about how there is such a culture for people to say oh if you just change your thinking or if you just think more positively And, you know, it's somehow your own fault (laughs) if you don't do that, that you're suffering. Mm. And I think that that's such an important reminder, especially with something like bipolar. Yes, there are things we can do to manage and treat to some extent, but it's so out of your control for the most part. And Mm. that's okay. Hugely, hugely. I think, and this was in the early days and when I became a mother as well, um, navigating it in the sense that I have control over the underlying biology and neurochemistry of my brain sets me up for failure. Like I I had so many doctors tell me, you wouldn't be this hard on yourself if this was a physical illness. If this was diabetes, you'd be dealing with it differently. Mm. And for years I was like, that's utter BS because I feel like society is constantly telling me I should be stronger, I should have Mm. a better mindset, I should override my feelings of no motivation and push through for the betterment of my mental health. But unfortunately, part of my condition is I will relapse. If I go into this thinking that I have utter control, it sets me up to completely bottom out because I have failed. And that's not the case. No. So seeing it as something that I have to live with and get better at navigating is a far smarter goal if we're talking Mm. goal setting, to aim for. Mm. Of course, every time I relapse, I'm hugely frustrated, but with a self-compassionate lens from the understanding of my illness, Mm. that's short-lived and I can navigate it better. And what do you think was the turning point, if I can ask, from going from that I'm a failure and I need control to, okay, I need to be far more compassionate with myself. Probably the shift to really engage with psychology. Um, so what's led me to have perfectionistic tendencies and why do I so heavily rely on those? Mm. So starting to challenge some of those underlying things that were there. Mm. Um, and I think when I did that work and I found a psychologist I really clicked with, that I was willing to push through some of the uncomfortable stuff with, Mm. um, I think that's when it changed. I think it's when I was like, hang on, little Tegan doing some childhood work Mm. was doing the best she could with what she had. Exactly. What can I support her with moving forward? And that schema therapy that inner child work. I know it's such a buzz on Instagram at the moment, but like when you're Mm. actually in therapy doing that work, it is hard. And that, that was what actually helped me. And I really like scream it from the rooftops. Like it's Mm. so powerful. Hugely. Yeah. I, like I was, (laughs) like you say, it's a bit of a buzz at the moment, especially social media wise, inner child work or reparenting work or, um, I was doing schema work six years ago and this is the work that I'm still drawing on now. (laughs) Yeah. And I think too, if I fast forward to now, like I did a big bulk section of this schema work with a trained psychologist. I haven't actually touched on that stuff again. Mm. I'm starting. I've just met a new psychologist who I'm going to do a bit more work in this area. But I haven't had the capacity because it was that, that, that big. Yeah, hugely. To make space for more Mm. than survival. That was out of my capacity for the last 12 months. I couldn't actually add anything else in to the mix. Yeah, inherently wanting to do self-work. 
needs the space and mm. time to be able to do it and I, I didn't have it. As much as I might have needed it, there was other factors to consider. And I think we were chatting the other day too about this capacity stuff um, mm. and being able to show up and people saying show up for yourself, do the work, inherently don't understand how big that is like the survival work that gets done yep show up and do that so the house keeps running but to dig any deeper than that actually will derail me to a degree and that's what it's supposed to do but to have that capacity is not a luxury that everyone has no but I'm I'm glad that you did have that and that you're continuing that going forward when you do have that capacity yeah for sure Um, Heading in towards if you want to talk about the decision to have children and start a family and what that was like. So, yeah, I I met my partner, what are we up to, 10 years ago, I reckon, um, and we got married five or six years ago. It's all very blurry. Um, and, I, and I've written about this. I was in the best place I'd been. I was mm. navigating my ongoing illness. I was navigating that the best I had. Um, we spent two years looking into specialists that could help us, what it was going to look like, how best to stay well in this space. We had two miscarriages prior to the birth of my first little girl and we navigated quite well. That was part of our story, part of our journey and and we did quite well. Medication-wise, I was seeing my psychiatrist and an additional psychiatrist as well. Um, Same medication in a turn of events, the gold standard of lithium was allowed in pregnancy for my case at a lower dose that was safe enough for the risk we wanted to take with our pregnancy, Um, but it needed to be really closely monitored. Of course. I made the decision in our pre-workup that I wasn't going to breastfeed Mm-hmm. because there was a risk of my medication, not all medications, no. but my medication passing through. Mm. And also I know sleep is a huge trigger in my illness yeah. and having my partner be able to feed was going to be a huge bonus. So that was a decision we didn't take lightly. Mm. Um, so we, I like to say I thought we did as much as we could, but we did as much as we knew of and it was driven by me Mm. like I was the one researching making phone calls this wasn't a clear pathway even though I know other people were having to navigate this it Mm. it wasn't a clear pathway so we did pretty good my pregnancy I was really sick I had HG (laughs) and I lost a ton of weight and I didn't stop vomiting and that had implications for my medication as well but we managed, like it was okay. Um, my partner was able to have extended leave, paternity leave. The newborn bubble was quite lovely for us. Mm. Um, together we did well. Even looking back at photos recently, like there was more ups than downs in that first year of life and we thought we were doing pretty well. Um, I think deciding to have another child was based on that experience like we we thought we managed rather than potentially get back into work and then have to deal with that transition again Mm. we decided that maybe we'd have another babe closer together I vividly remember my psychiatrist because I was talking about these things and he's not a perinatal psychiatrist. He's my long-term psychiatrist that I've had for 10 years now Um, saying it's a bit like deciding to stay in the war zone longer, Tegan. Like you're deciding to stay in the trenches rather than come out for reprieve. And I thought, well, that's a really funny way of thinking about it, but it 100% was. (laughs) If I can just track back a second, um, you mentioned you thought you did the best you could with what you knew. Yep. That sound like you know more now. And yep. what exactly is it that you wish you knew before? There's so many things I wish I knew. Um, matrescence from the get-go, like the huge change that would happen. And it's not that I didn't, like I I was actively seeking out information in that first year to support myself through this and having these light bulb moments of this isn't necessarily my mental health. 
this is part of the course. Yeah. 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 Being linked in with a specific perinatal psychiatrist that can link a lot more of this stuff together rather than me. It's such a hard one because I was linked in short term, Mm. sort of six weeks either side of my birth. I had the hospital's perinatal psych on board, but I was doing well. So I got discharged. Um, So things like that, it's in retrospect to allow yourself that sort of space. And I think the biggest thing that I wish I knew Mm. is that all the work I did wouldn't necessarily all need to be redone, but it would need to be looked at again through my now motherhood lens. Yeah. You say a good experience with bub number one prompted you to want to try with bub number two. And this is where you struggled. What was that like? Mm, Absolutely. And I don't think it wasn't that I wasn't struggling um, first time round. It was that we were managing with the skills I had. So I could say it was bipolar and episodes were coming up and I was navigating it. When we got pregnant with my second daughter, Greta, Harriet had just turned one. We had had two early miscarriages prior. Um, Again, we navigated that as part of our journey. It was COVID. We were locked down. I'd made the decision to temporarily move back to the country um, to be with my parents to support my one-year-old. And I had anxiety from the get-go. Not only the previous miscarriages, but this inherent, oh no, (laughs) constantly circulating in me. I was really sick again, Mm. potentially sicker than I was with Harriet. And I was trying to navigate a toddler as well. It was, yeah, from the get-go, it was high stress. After those early miscarriages, we had decided I was going to return to work and I was going to have this break and reset everything. And then we got pregnant with Greta. Um, So the fact that we had these return-to-work plans that, that I had to change was also quite hard for me to process. Um. We'd got childcare for Harriet so I could have this space to return to work, but we kept it so I could manage the pregnancy. Um, And that was hard for me to accept. Like now she's going to childcare two days a week because I'm not managing. Mm. So already my internal dialogue had changed. My self-compassion had fallen away and I was in this survival mode, um, which probably persisted the whole of the pregnancy. It really escalated towards her due date Mm. um backtracking Harriet my firstborn was a breech bub we knew she was going to be a section at 36 weeks I went into spontaneous labor and labored for a little while but then had emergency section um I had in this in my head that I really should try a VBAC I wanted that for all of us but uh 36 week mark sort of came and went and I was like oh I was just expecting my waters to break and this was going to be the same process it wasn't of course (laughs) um so a week later 37 weeks went into spontaneous labor but my anxiety had hugely peaked like I I couldn't get my head in the game at all my obstetrician happened to be away And all in all, I ended up with this emergency section again, Mm. which I was okay with, but Greta had a heap of fluid on her lung and had to go to PICU. Mm. So she spent four days in PICU. And I wouldn't say my experience is traumatic, but there were so many turns that I thought I needed to advocate for myself better or I could have done better for the situation. And I did quite well at seeking out support there and then to process all that. Mm. But it added to the chaos of my survival. And then, yeah, again, our newborn time was quite lovely. My husband had another extended period off. Um, Navigating too was always going to be a challenge, but we did somewhat find a groove. And there wasn't a pivotal moment that everything changed and went downhill. Mm. It was just hard. Like the way I would normally navigate episodes in my mental health was a real struggle 
to navigate it the same way. It wasn't as effective. It wasn't working. Um, intrusive thoughts were a huge component of every day. Mm. And I'd done work on intrusive thoughts and how much time and effort I put in them. Mm. But they were relentless, like constant. When you're in that survival mode as well, it's extra hard to get on top of managing that. It's extra yeah. hard to turn the volume down on that noise. Yeah. Hugely, hugely. On a side note, like a big pet peeve at the moment is people saying we control our thoughts. And I think that's <laughs> that blows my mind that people... Like, I don't control my thoughts. I control how much time I put in them or the volume of them. But it's so shameful to say to someone that they're controlling what they're thinking when that's not the story for everyone. I don't think it's the story for anyone. I don't know. But I think, and I mean, I'm again, I'm not a psychologist, but theory says we aren't our thoughts. We just observe our thoughts. We are just the observers. Absolutely. Thinking that we have control of our thoughts causes, as you said, shame, because it's why aren't I in control? Why can't I make this stop? It's such a dangerous narrative. So detrimental. And I think... I probably, looking back at what I was journaling and what I was writing, at about four to six months of my second babe, it wasn't a shift, but it was something different. And I was saying, I I, I can't get on top of this. Like, I, mm. I'm not getting reprieve. I'm not, I'm not managing. And not that it was brushed aside, but when I mentioned this to my GP and my psychiatrist, who both aren't perinatal trained, it was very much... This is part of your journey. You've now got two kids. You've got increased stresses. This is understandable. Mm. And I kept trying to tell myself that, mm. but inherently knew something was different. I went an extra six months and I actually started working that time because it was this idea in me that I was lacking purpose external to motherhood. Mm. I was doing writing in this space and I felt really connected to what I was writing and this job opportunity came up to be a peer worker in a mother-baby unit oh, wow. and I jumped at it. Mm. I jumped at it. I thought, yep, this is it. This is the external bit that I need to get some validations. It'll be okay. And it was okay. <laughs> the job was great. Um but there were still underlying issues that I was feeling. And you wrote to me many weeks or months ago now saying that you didn't have to fight for your bipolar diagnosis. You had to fight for your postnatal depression diagnosis. Hugely. Was there something like a specific moment in your motherhood journey before we get to the postnatal depression diagnosis? A specific moment or an interaction or something that made you think this isn't me or this isn't my usual, let's use that in quotes, my usual bipolar. Um, another big thing on social media, getting a lot of airtime, but the mum rage side. Mm. So this incurable anger in me, mm. so frustrated. There's this inherent rage and it was consuming, like I was infuriated. I think I wrote about it once, about slamming my phone in a protest of anger, slamming mm. my phone on a table, and it smashed. And I can remember looking at it like, how have I got here? Like, how have I not got the skills to process the feelings I have inside without doing something like that? Yeah. Um, and that was new. And so confronting in the sense that I say my piece, then I'll raise my voice if I feel the need. Um, but like outwardly angry, like mm. actual anger. And I did lots of reading around it and it's so common, but the underlying thing that was like a light bulb for me is I'm pretty good at navigating getting my needs met. What is happening now that I, I can't move past this? Like I can't, like I'm not being heard. Yeah, there was more to it. Like this is not me. This is bigger than me. There's something else is happening. I need help with this. <laughs> but yeah, it was it was that mum rage stuff. Again, I don't know about bipolar enough, but from the doctor's point of view, are they just thinking that the depression is a part of a bipolar episode? And I think it's a really hard one because I've had mixed answers from professionals. Yeah. There's still this ongoing debate that, well, maybe it's just 
perinatally you with bipolar, like maybe it's not postnatal depression, um, which which is fine if that's how you want to look at it. But for me, it was inherently different to what I was experiencing prior to being a mother. And a diagnosis on a personal level mm. is only going to be as helpful as we sort of make it. Do you know what I mean? Like putting a label on something doesn't necessarily change it. No. But for me, for someone who happened to be a second psychiatrist that I had an external review for as a second opinion mm. for some other treatment options. Um, and he said it so matter-of-factly. He's like, well, it's pretty clear to see that you've got postnatal depression. And I can remember it just being like a truck hit me, but mm. a relief at the same time. Like, thank God, <laughs> like mm. this picture has been so jumbled in my mind that I'm not doing enough and not managing Mm. but there's something else going on here like I had this underlying postnatal depression constant and me saying the constantness of motherhood is it's not computing with me but it was the constantness of my depression Mm. and me functioning with that as well as I could that was just being missed yeah and for me the month after that diagnosis was really traumatic and turmoil as I processed all of that um it involved a hospitalization Mm. um and 10 days away from my kids because of COVID yeah and if I'm honest 12 months down the track it's taken 12 months of recovery work that isn't stopping now Mm. like I've I've got to a place now that I can go back to a psychologist and work with this Mm. like survival mode for the last 12 months which involved a move back down to the country for more family support to sort of give me the space and structure and support that I needed yeah I guess if you're happy to talk about that psychiatric ward admission Mm. I'm gonna ask I'm assuming that wasn't your first admission no 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 no. okay so (laughs) definitely not but it was eight years since my last admission. Yeah. So I'd done all this work pre-kids mm. naively, hopefully, thinking that that wasn't part of my story anymore, but it had to be. And the added layers, I was in an adult private unit. Um, I <laughs> The mother-baby unit in South Australia I've worked at Mm. Not ideal to be admitted mm. there. But also this was my second babe was 13 months old and it's like under 12 months old. So yeah. um, just the space where you end up and I have worked in adult units. I knew what they were about. I was a recluse. I spent the time in my room doing the hard yards to get myself better like it, it just it had to happen it was a circuit break for me that looked at my health as a whole um but yeah it's so hard to navigate <laughs> um it and it's it's really hard like I don't it's not that I'm shameful of a hospital stay and I think it's the small proportion of the population that doesn't get it enough to say She should have done something earlier. She should have prevented that from happening. The shame of people who don't understand personifies the guilt I already felt as a mother. Absolutely. Um, Just before when you were saying that you thought you'd done the work. Yeah, I, I get that because that's... I thought, okay, I've done the work. I'm proud of myself. I can have kids and it'll be fine. Yeah or I have the tools to manage and mm. that pain or that that sense of failure, mm-hmm. I don't think people understand. I know, I, I think you're 100% right and that hits you in the feels because doing that work before kids, holding that shame for yourself, the guilt that you felt, but it was only, only you affected. Yeah. Adding a partner, children inherently, <laughs> maybe not correctly, but that guilt is personified and as much as I'm a huge advocate for doing the work doing the self-care whatever you want to call it for you as a human as a mother standing right alongside of that 
is doing it for your family unit as mm. well. So you can show up not just for yourself because you deserve that, but for the family as well. It's a really big juggle. If you're happy to talk about it, what prompted that need to go into the psychiatric hospital? That mm. month between that diagnosis and that hospital admission? Mm. I think I had all of a sudden my postnatal depression was labelled and allowed in a sense and I think in freeing myself from that, trying to process all that, I had a really big bipolar episode on top of. So it was a mixed episode which is really challenging to diagnose in itself and I've had them before, but this one was bigger. Like it, it, it wasn't a matter of me soldiering on. No, it was, it was time to actually, yeah, the yeah. the wheels were off. It yeah, was, that's yeah. a good metaphor <laughs> or a good yeah. analogy. Yeah. Um, so just to maybe clarify for people who are listening who aren't familiar with that, a mixed episode uh-huh. is both the depressive episode and the manic episode. Yeah. Yep. So I've had both. Um, mm. Um, I mentioned at the start I had an induced one by antidepressants, but I've mm. had since episodes of mania um, mm. without a medication bias. Um, and it's got its own array of symptoms, huge amount of energy, sleep becomes minimal, lots of other things. But when it's in a mixed episode, you get all the episodes of depression chugging along, but then these unusual mania type symptoms as well on top mm. of so it becomes messy it becomes murky yeah. it becomes really hard to know what's going on and basically the analogy of wheels off my brain was just crying out for a break the circuit break that we were needing my brain was firing yeah. and it wasn't making sense to me it wasn't making sense externally but it was it was in huge need of respite <laughs> yeah when you said it's a circuit breaker, mm. I'm assuming you only look at it that way now. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was it was hard pressed to keep me there, and of course, there's always means to keep a patient there that needs to be there, mm. and that's where I ended up. I think I did two days post my ITO being revoked, so it was like I can no longer hold in me my need to be here and my need to be a mother. Mm. I know that I was really fortunate to have enough support around me to facilitate everything I couldn't do Mm. because I was still coming out of an episode where I was really unwell. But not everybody has that. Like it's, it's really hard. And so do you just want to explain that term, ITO? Yep. So a psychiatrist or a medical professional can write an involuntary treatment order for a certain period of time to keep you within care involuntarily if you're not agreeable to it. Um, And there's so many reasons why people aren't agreeable to this. Um, It's not based on one doctor's point of view. It's always reviewed by an external source. And mine was definitely reviewed by an external source. I made sure of it. but it's to keep people safe. Yeah. It's to try and get them into some care. And coming out of that, coming out of hospital and returning home, what was that like? It was my littlies were actually in the country, so they were mm. four and a half hours away. Jeez. Um, so immediately we went to see them. Um, it was decided collaboratively that I probably needed more time before jumping into both of them Mm. Um, and I still had appointments in the city that I had to go to. So my eldest came back to the city and my youngest stayed another week and then after that week with support we slowly got our groove back. It's, yeah, some of those decisions whilst I was part of them inevitably family under the advice of medical professionals are making what they think the best decision Mm. is for you in the circumstances 
even the people closest to you probably don't anticipate the ramifications that that means mentally for you. But we got there. I know, but as you said, there are consequences for those Mm. decisions, especially when you're not 100% committed to that decision. Mm. I'm sure it's a tricky one, but yeah. It's so tricky. It's so tricky. Maybe I couldn't have managed, but my mum internal barometer was screaming Mm. that not only did I need my girls close but they needed me too yeah so I guess dealing with some of that guilt but trying to accept what had happened in the past was really challenging you mentioned on your submission form a particular treatment which not many people know about Mm. which is TMS and I'm just wondering if you wanted to talk about that so for those who aren't familiar that's transmagnetic stimulation yeah so actually the second opinion we got psychiatrist was about TMS starting Mm. Um, he's a specialist in Adelaide for TMS and we did go ahead so I had my admission Um, I think it was two weeks after that that I started TMS for a month Um, it was a huge commitment Mm. It was once a day, I think the treatment itself was sort of 20 minutes to half an hour, but getting there and having children minded, my appointments were midday every day. So getting out of the house for an hour and a half every day, I think it was four out of five days or a month. It was really challenging. It's a really hard one to say because Mm. on paper, doing questionnaires pre, during and after, I improved. Like, I definitely improved. Yep, statistically, I improved. Um, Like, I have talked about it a lot with my psychiatrist since, and I don't personally know if it had a big enough effect for me to warrant signing up for it again. Yeah. I do know in other states of Australia they have portable units that can be done at home Mm. for, like, a maintenance treatment being that it was an initial treatment for me that wouldn't have been an option anyway but yep on paper it had an effect Mm. there was still and maybe it got me back to a place of functioning enough and everyone's so different Mm. um I was definitely hoping for more was there something said by maybe one of your professionals that was validating and comforting or invalidating was there a specific memory you have around that Mm, I've got multiple Whichever ones you're comfortable sharing. I think after my last admission, this Mm. time last year, my long-term psychiatrist, who's been brilliant, he actually introduced me to a recovery sort of process, which changed my trajectory. Um, But when I was processing, I thought hospital stays were no longer part of my story. And he looked at me with empathy and he said, have I ever given you that idea? Like he was taking ownership of part of it. And I'm like, no, that's that's me. <laughs> and he's like, I'm so sorry, Tegan, but this is your illness. And it won't always be part of it, but sometimes it might be. Mm-hmm. And that was really validating. Like I just sometimes we're our own harshest critics and coming from some of that perfectionist stuff and the control that I wanted over my illness in early days, like I'm not to blame in this circuit my illness above me Mm. part of me but separate from me as well like that's part of it like it's unfortunately part of it so it was it it was validating that yeah this isn't necessarily my fault and we all need that compassion especially Mm. from our health providers Mm. and I think even the like second opinion psychiatrist that gave me my postnatal depression like his bluntness and matter of factness, um, not what I look for usually in a clinician, mm. but it was that black and white to him. Like, mm. that's okay. Like, his black and whiteness and directness was like, yeah, yeah, that, that's. It was validating yep. in its own it's right. Valid- <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yep. Has other ramifications always, but yeah, like it was validating that it was black and white to someone external to the picture. Maybe a last question. How are you feeling about the future? Overall good. Mm. Overall good. There's challenge every day with being a mother in general. (laughs) Um, Navigating our own emotions while helping 
to assist navigating a little person's emotions is a huge responsibility. And while I said before, like I'm an advocate for doing work and having space and doing the dreaded self-care or nurturing work because you deserve it as a human being, as a mother, even I rely on doing this work benefits others, like it benefits others now. Me being the wellest I can benefits my family unit. So, yeah, first and foremost, yes, I need to do it for me and my enjoyment of life Mm. but on the days where that's hard to access doing it for my girls is another bloody good reason for me for sure actually maybe this will be my last question we spoke this week actually about relapse prevention Mm. Mm, and it was just a topic that came up because it was in my stories what does relapse prevention what does that look like for you if you're happy to talk about that yeah yeah no that's good um, I loved that you brought it up and that's why I was immediately back to you like, this is gold, this is so good. Um, somebody who has an ongoing illness, whether that's long-term anxiety or long-term depression or bipolar or something physical, um, we all have a need for relapse prevention, right? Um, I think it's overlooked. Sometimes by professionals it's overlooked, like they deal with the nitty-gritty of when you are unwell. But the relapse prevention work is often on your own or with support and guidance that you seek out. Uh, Mine's an ongoing. So I did, again, all this work before babies and I had a relapse prevention plan on paper with like ideals. My husband had looked at it. We Even the other day, my husband said, we used to navigate this really good, like bang, 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 we knew what to do. Um, We don't now because we haven't actually spent time out of survival mode to like really look at what it means as a mother to have a relapse prevention plan because I've looked at the relapse prevention plan from 2017, pre-babes. None of them work now. None of them work with kids in the house. Like, sure, I can try, Mm. but none of them work easily. So I think... At its core, and I'm doing work not only with a psychologist but a great perinatal OT Mm. um, to really look at this stuff, to look at the early triggers that you were talking about because we do have them. Mm. The ragey stuff for me is like tip of the iceberg stuff, like it's the really outward often. The cherry on top really. The cherry on top, like it is, and it gains more attention because it's not heaps desirable. People around you don't like it. It's not really accepted as a mother to be this ragey person. But there's so many signs before then. Yeah. And not only looking at the pre-signs but what it actually means. I think the work I've done so far is about not being heard. So I think spending time sort of looking into early triggers like what that actually means, what's the underlying, and what can you do that's not go to a day spa for self-care for the day because that's not realistic as a mum. Like, sure, maybe every few months you can do that, but I need go-to stuff. Like Mm. I, a recent one we've found is my husband's also a shift worker, so even navigating what that looks like in terms of these ongoing stay well parameters get changes on a Mm. daily basis but on a really hard day with the girls that I might have been stuck at home say they're unwell and we've been homebound and it's been a pressure cooker of a day Mm. before I can even contemplate asking him how his day was I need to walk for like 20, 30 minutes to process some of this stuff. Like I, and maybe not even process it, just get space from it. Yeah. Space from what having to deal with. And that's minor. Like that's an achievable thing I can do. Mm. And I've, I've been walking a lot recently with my two year old in a pram because it works for me. But finding, exploring, having a look at all those things you used to love doing that fueled your soul, how can you make them happen as a mum? Mm. like it might look maybe it doesn't look different for you for me it looked hugely different and that was a component of you know it all sort of falling apart it looked so different to what I knew worked I wasn't actually quite sure where to go so yeah having time and space to look at that like I had a psychologist years and years and years ago give me a sheet of enjoyable pleasurable activities because that had gone by the wayside but maybe we need a bloody sheet of how you get those things into your life as a mum. 
Yeah. Some people do it really well, but I really struggled with that, filling my own cup. Especially when you're in survival mode and you're looking after your kids, they're mm. sick, you're nurturing them, you then have to feed yourself, have a shower, you know, the basics. Oh, mm. mm. To then have to think about, oh, how am I going to fill my cup? It's, it's not happening. Or not in the <laughs> traditional sense that we're sold, yeah. that it could happen. Yeah. yeah, I think that's it, isn't it? And I think like life as a physio, we, we do these achievable, measurable things and kids throw that out the window. Like you really <laughs> need to re-look at it because what actually worked is really hard to implement sometimes. And if you can't implement that, it's like a real inherent need to have the space to look at it so it is achievable. And I think what you've said, that you're seeing a perinatal occupational therapist, that's where they can mm. actually really help you in terms of relapse prevention. Because oh. yes, it sounds logical, oh, I need to know my triggers. It, having the time to even sit down to figure out, <laughs> okay, what are my triggers? Like, yeah. It's so helpful and I'm really glad that that's actually been helpful for you. Mm, totally. Like, I, yeah, I think as mums there's this notion that we need to know everything for our kid and we need to follow our gut and that's challenging in itself in the society we live. But all of that applies to you as a mum. Yeah. Like, I don't inherently know, and I've been doing this a while, mental health sort of relapse prevention stuff, and it's really hard for me. Like, yeah. that's okay, yeah. but just it's a work in progress and it always will be. I'll set a game plan of this year not being survival mode but actually getting some practical skills under my belt while I've got the time and space. And I'll have to do this multiple times. Everyone does. Yeah. Like, it's not a recipe for everyone that you can keep forever. No. It's natural to have to come back to our relapse prevention plans and to yeah. to know what are our mm. triggers now as a mm. mum, what fills our cup now as a mum, what's achievable as a mum. Mm. And I probably think it's around that stuff that I wish I had have known. Not that it would have changed it necessarily, but... Yep, Tegan, you've done great work getting yourself up to being able to consider babies and mm. doing that. It's going to be ongoing work. And I know that deep down. But just, you know. Practically, what does that actually look like? Yeah. 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 Is there anything you wish someone could take from your story? It's such a hard one. Like when parts of a story resonate with someone, like that's big. That's mm. huge. And I feel compassion that we're not alone in this. But... I think my biggest thing at the moment is maybe you listen to something or you read something of someone else's lived experience and it doesn't resonate with you and that's fine. But having enough self-awareness and compassion to know that their lived experience may be able to educate you about the way you move in the world. Mm. Like all our capacities are different. We've all got these individual battles going on behind closed doors. Being able to speak up isn't like a narrative of I need attention, I'm doing this right. Mm. It's like highlighting that this is hard and if there was less judgment, shame, the list goes on, accessing help would be that much easier. Like I think talking about resilience and mental grit and mind frame when you're talking to somebody who has an ongoing illness whether that be mental or physical is so degrading mm. because you have no concept of the amount of you know mindset determination grit there is to show up every day like I think just general kindness and whilst you might think you understand maybe you don't and that's okay. But it's just, I don't know, I, I struggle so much that people are guilted and shamed with what they're experiencing. And that's so powerful because no one has to walk in your shoes. No, no. one has had to go through that story. That's okay. But I hope stories like this, whether we relate or not, mm. gives you a chance to speak your truth feel mm. held but mm. also allow someone to say there's more to this world than just the world that I live in <laughs> and there's more that we can be doing and we can advocate for people whether or not we've walked in their shoes or not. Oh, hugely, hugely, hugely. Like we need understanding and compassion. Like I feel like it's been lost in the process. Yeah. Yeah. 
our individual components of our stories are always going to be unique. Mm. But the actual experience, struggling with support for dealing with the change, like they're, they're unfortunately part of our motherhood experience at the moment. And accessing help and support needs to be normalised. It's so frustrating that advocating for yourself is half the battle, but finding someone to advocate to, like, really? (laughs) And I hate that you had to do it, but that you advocated for yourself so much. Mm. And, you know, I say this a lot, but where would we be? Where would you be if you weren't advocating for yourself? And I, as much as I can hold pride for that for myself, I think bigger picture somebody who might not have the mental health knowledge, Yeah. someone that this might be their first presentation in the perinatal period while trying to navigate being a mum, mm. which is also new, how did they advocate for themselves? It's scary. Like mm. it's scary. And I think that's probably why I've ended up writing and posting some of these stories. It's not trying to normalise it. I don't want to normalise this, but I want people to know that accessing help when things don't feel right should be normalised. Like Mm. that's the bit that should be normalised, not feeling like yourself and trying to get some answers around that and getting some support around that. Like I think that if you know it's not working as a mum, if you're like feeling the need to hide how hard this is, you deserve support. Like you have the right to reach out. You don't have to put your hand up and tell your whole story or part of your story to justify. Mm. If it's not feeling good for you or if it's feeling too hard for you or if it's a challenge, you deserve support. I think that's a beautiful message and I hope that that's something everyone can take away from your story. So again, as you said, they might not relate to the specifics but we all relate to feeling like we don't deserve help or feeling like we're a bad mum. Could not agree more. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Well, thank you so much, Taken, for taking the time to talk to me because you are just a beautiful, beautiful person and your advocacy online has always stood out to me. Yeah, like it's, I think, all those things about you, the, the work that you do in this space, credit to you, like these platforms, we need multiple platforms but a podcast that people can listen to, other women's experience of navigating mental ill health, whatever that may look like, knowing what is available or where to look or that it's okay to be looking Mm. and let's help you try and find something and giving people a voice, not only to be heard from their perspective, but to be validating for somebody else potentially getting help is amazing. Thank you to all our listeners for holding space for today's story. If you like this episode, please leave a review and rating to help me bring you more amazing content. Join the conversation and be featured on the podcast by sharing your story through my website, perinatalstoriesaustralia.com. If these stories are a bit too much to listen to or to read right now, then come back another time. Protecting your mental health is the number one priority. As always, this podcast and its associated blog and social media accounts is not a substitute for therapy or for getting help. No medical advice is provided, only lived experiences. If any of this does resonate though, please reach out to a medical professional. See you next time.